0: Hi everyone, this is Mike DeBliss, tax lawyer. In this podcast, I'm going to talk about eggshell audits. Uh, This is a very vast topic and there are so many many elements to it. I'm going to uh, try to give you a bird's eye view of an eggshell audit and uh, kind of steer your attention towards some of the um, things that you might want to look for when uh, you have a client that you're shepherding through one of these audits. I also want to address in this podcast the issue of a taxpayer who's um, undergoing an eggshell audit and the difficult decision with respect to filing returns for tax periods subsequent to periods um, that are being audited. Um, And so, we're going to back our way into that after we uh, go into some background information about eggshell audits. So, what is an eggshell audit? Um, The IRS often audits taxpayers who, unbeknownst to the examiner at the start of the examination, have uh, major problems. And uh, these problems could essentially uh, even be criminal in nature. The practitioner assisting uh, taxpayer uh, will have done his homework and um, uh, belatedly, um, you know, uh, might have ascertained that there's a problem and the scope of the problem. And um, the next issue then, of course, becomes one of damage control. Now, a traditional source of referrals to the criminal investigation arm of the IRS is the civil audit. And so that's why, as tax practitioners, we have to be very cognizant of this issue and be very um, careful with how we handle uh, these audits. Um, One wrong move could potentially um, result in a referral to CI, And um, of course, that's the last thing we want to see happen to um, our client. So when it comes to eggshell audits, um, it's important to note, if you were thinking uh, along the lines of, well, how about a voluntary disclosure, it's too late. Uh, Once an audit or examination has begun, um, the, uh, the ability to take advantage of a voluntary disclosure um, it basically evaporates, and uh, it's no longer an option. In some cases, disclosure to the agent um, may be the best option, and um, I realize that uh, that may come as a shock to some, but um, in a classic example, um, if when in a situation when the practitioner can obtain a reasonable level of assurance, that the civil agent won't refer the matter to CI, so the disclosure of the fraud to the agent will not result in a referral for criminal investigation. Uh, disclosure uh, then might be the best option. Um, however, uh, that kind of infers uh, that scenario infers one where there are uh, open channels of communication between the practitioner and the agent um, and uh, trust. In the sense that the practitioner uh, feels uh, confident enough to confide um, such, uh, you know, such information to the examiner um, and that there is a reasonable level of assurance that um, after confiding that information to the examiner that the agent won't refer the matter to CI. So again, it's built on trust. And um, another thing that's implicit um, is that uh, there may have been um, a few prior times where this practitioner has worked with this revenue agent, so that you know who you're dealing with. Um, because the last thing you want to do is just spill it out, and then um, and then have happen, and then have the examiner uh, make a subsequent referral to CI. So um, there has to be uh, an ele- there has to be some trust built in there, and there has to be a reasonable level of assurance that by disclosing uh, this potential understatement um, of income or uh, whatever the uh, irregularity on the return is, that um, it's not going to lead to a referral. A disclosure to the agent may still be the best option, even if reasonable assurances cannot be obtained. Um, If the fraudulent item is so blatantly obvious that it's not a matter of if but when the agent will uncover it, uh, the best strategy may be to disclose the error in the hope that by correcting the item, the disclosure will essentially uh, negate the willfulness element. Um, and the significance of negating the willfulness element is that it would be difficult for, um, CI to, um, make a referral to the Department of Justice if the element of willfulness is lacking, because willfulness is, um, essentially the core element of a crime of tax evasion. Um, so By disclosing up front to the civil examiner about the fraudulent item, it uh, blunts the issue of uh, willfulness and it becomes less of a uh, sexy case, so to speak, to bring before a jury Um, because at the end of the day, the defense attorney would be able to argue to the jury that in good faith... The taxpayer came forward, even though it was during a civil audit, to disclose the fraudulent item before it went uh, before the audit went any further, and um, in so doing, exercised um, uh, exercised uh, due diligence and transparency. And as a result, uh, there was no, and as a result, um, you know, willfulness and fraud and deception, uh, all of those um, uh, capstone, um, all those capstone uh, mental states uh, don't apply here. So, um, again, disclosure to the agent may still be the best option, even if reasonable assurances cannot be obtained. But again, as a tax practitioner you're walking a very 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 fine line. Assuming the civil exam proceeds without making a full disclosure, um, of course, and this goes without saying, um, as a tax uh, practitioner you want to limit any and all contact between the agent and the taxpayer. Um, Another tip to keep in mind is that it's always Good practice to audit the revenue agent. By auditing the revenue agent, what I'm referring to here is tracking the investigation to keep current on what the agent knows. IRS civil agents um, have an obligation to notify the taxpayer before contacting third parties and to keep a record of the third parties contacted during the civil phase of an investigation. Uh, that sometimes gets lost. Um, But it is the law. Um, Civil agents have an absolute duty to notify the taxpayer before contacting third parties and to keep a record of the third parties contacted during the civil phase of the exam. Um, And then, coupled with that, uh, Section 7609 requires the IRS to notify the taxpayer of summonses um, to third parties. Uh, The notice requirement um, is null and void when it comes to a criminal investigation. But keep in mind here that we are referring to a civil exam. Now, if a witness voluntarily provides information uh, without the need for a third-party summons, uh, the record may be collecting dust in the agent's file, um, generally until it's requested by the defense Um, So, again, 7609 comes into play when we are dealing with summonses issued to a third party. If the situation is one where the witness voluntarily provides information without uh, the need for a third party summons, then uh, we don't come under this mandatory rule that the IRS uh, provide notice to the taxpayer of this information that was gleaned from this witness Um, however um, the examiner's uh, records will likely contain information of this statement that was provided by the witness and um, it's in the records and uh, you know fair game uh, pursuant to a FOIA request Uh, so as the defense attorney or as a tax practitioner, it's uh, sometimes good practice to do a FOIA request to see what is inside the examiner's file uh, that might disclose things that, um, at first blush, come as a surprise. Um, And yet, uh, it's all fair game. Um, especially if the witness volunteered the information without the third-party summons because, again, that negates any obligation on the part of the revenue agent to provide notice to the taxpayer. Um, Establishing a good relationship with potential witnesses during a civil exam is uh, the best uh, cure-all here um, because to the extent that... um, as the tax practitioner you've established a good rapport with potential witnesses Uh, there's a good chance that if a potential witness is contacted by the examiner that he or she will phone you or email you and let you know that um, they had been contacted or have been contacted by a revenue agent uh, with a request uh, to provide information uh, relating to the taxpayer's uh, case. And then, um, you, uh, you then have, uh, a way, a backdoor way, so to speak, of knowing that, um, that person has been contacted. Whereas, um, uh, whereas if you, uh, didn't, uh, reach out to that witness and you didn't, uh, build uh, a relationship. uh, You have no way of knowing whether that person has been contacted unless they take it upon themselves to call you or email you to let you know. Now, if the agent issued a third-party summons and uh, neither you nor the taxpayer received notice, uh, that summons probably was issued incident to a criminal investigation issued with notice sent to the incorrect address or issued in violation of the notice requirement. Now, if a civil audit turns quiet, uh, that in itself could be a sign that uh, something is going on behind the scenes. Uh, Now, I'm not suggesting that uh, you see shadows in the dark here, but Again, we're dealing with a very delicate situation. It's an eggshell audit where um, you as a tax practitioner have discovered, albeit late, um, because sometimes these things come as a surprise, uh, oftentimes they do, that there is a fraudulent item on a year's return that is being audited. So you already know that um, (laughs) where there's smoke, there's fire. And um, you know, you want to um, be very sensitive to uh, subtle things. And in this uh, case, uh, what I'm suggesting is that if um, the examiner goes uh, silent on you, uh, that could be a sign that there is a referral or that a referral has been made to CI. And in that case, um, it's important, to um, follow up with the examiner. Um, if the examiner isn't uh, responding to your phone calls, um, I would uh, recommend escalating it to the examiner supervisor. Um, find out what's going on without tipping the agent off about um, you know anything uh, relating to the fraud. A FOIA request. Uh, should also be considered if it becomes clear that the case will be f- referred to CI. After the agent has completed the audit, it can take one of two directions. Um, these are uh, pretty uh, pretty direct, and I'm sure that uh, you're probably able to figure this out. Um, in the first uh, direction, the agent may not um, have found the fraud. And um, we'll close the civil examination with proposed adjustments or a no-change letter. Uh, that uh, scenario, um, of course, is the most favorable um, end to what is a very, um, a very nerve-wracking um, audit. Um, and yet, uh, that does uh, sometimes happen. Um, and again... Um, it requires uh, doing a very uh, detailed risk assessment to determine how uh, blatant the fraudulent item is. Um, it may not um, it may not invite as much scrutiny if it's not um, something that is blatantly obvious. But if it is blatantly obvious and it's a matter of um, when, not if, it's going to be found, um, it's unlikely that. Um, just sitting back and hoping that the agent doesn't find it's um, going to happen. The second uh, result that could happen after uh, the audit, and again, we're dealing with an eggshell audit where there is um, a fraudulent item on the return. Uh, we haven't really talked about the extent of that fraudulent item um, and how uh, substantial it is, but Um, It's there. The second um, direction that the audit could take is that the agent may determine that the case has sufficient criminal potential to be referred to criminal investigation. Although the Internal Revenue Manual requires that the agent refer the case to CI whenever there's a firm indication of fraud, in practice, agents are taught to consult with their group managers or fraud technical advisors to review the fraud potential in an exam. While a referral can occur any time during exam, it normally happens near the end of the exam. What type of cases are generally referred for prosecution? Well, let's back up a little bit and um, just discuss um, the uh, criminal tax enforcement system. I think the best way to back our way into this is to... Um, start with the notion that um, there are limited resources uh, when it comes to investigating um, tax cases. So the IRS invests heavily in uh, coordinating and prioritizing um, so that they can get the maximum bang for the enforcement buck. The Department of Justice tax... Um, is based in Washington, and they handle all tax trials in the federal courts of the United States. They also have authority to approve all tax-related indictments. Now, that does not mean that the Department of Justice tax in Washington prosecutes every single tax case. Um, As I'm sure you've uh, come to find out, uh, our local uh, U.S. attorney's offices... um, throughout the country handle their fair share of tax crime cases. Um, But DOJ Tax basically has to approve all tax-related indictments and they get to determine which ones they're going to keep and handle in-house and which ones they are going to outsource to the various uh, U.S. Attorney offices throughout the country. Um, whether that be in, for in New Jersey, for example, where I'm based, um, that would be in uh, Newark, where um, the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office is located. And so a lot of the regional offices handle uh, a fair number of tax crime cases. Department of Justice's uh, Criminal Enforcement Section applies its investigative and prosecutorial resources strategically so as to support the goal of the tax system. What is the goal of the tax system? Preserving the integrity of the nation's self-assessment tax system through vigorous enforcement of the Internal Revenue Laws. It does so, um, it accomplishes the overarching goal by prosecuting relatively few cases every year. Um, the latest statistic that I have is that, um, and this might be a little outdated, but approximately two to 3,000 uh, cases um, get prosecuted in the criminal tax realm every year. Uh, the U.S. Attorney Attorney's Office focuses on the strongest cases in which conviction is uh, highly likely and zeroes in on targets with a high profile. This doesn't necessarily mean celebrities, although we tend to see a lot of celebrities um, in the news um, when it comes to tax crimes. Um, the other um, high-profile targets are business professionals and those that, um, are, you know, engaged in, um, you know, in a nefarious activity that really is, um, you know, uh, that, that, that really, uh, shocks the conscience. Um, but business people, uh, business professionals, uh, they are all par for the course and, um, the goal here, again, is that the conviction will receive the maximum amount of publicity, encourage compliance, and heighten the deterrent effect among would-be tax cheats. So again, um, the government wants to get the maximum bang for its buck. Um, they don't want to have any backlash by going after a an 85- or 90-year-old um uh, elderly person who has, um, underreported, you know, a few thousand dollars worth of income. Uh, the backlash from that is, um, it would be a public relations nightmare. Instead, they want to go after the juicy targets, those with a high profile, celebrities, um, those that are high earners, um, and have a high net worth. Um, those are the ones that, um, uh, those are the ones that help them maximize um, the deterrent effect through uh, publicity and uh, allow them to um, allow them to get to send a strong message out to the public um, not to engage in this type of nefarious conduct and to be compliant. Now, the Department of Justice and the IRS accept the fact that there is a substantial, a, stamp, a substantiality requirement. Excuse me, when it comes to tax evasion, um, in general, the IRS will recommend criminal prosecution under Section 7201 only if the average yearly additional tax for criminal purposes is at least uh, twenty-five hundred dollars in specific items cases. Uh, with uncompl- uncomplicated facts, or at least ten thousand dollars for the prosecution period in indirect method cases, or cases with complicated facts, and those figures are constantly being revised um, every year and are adjusting uh, based on um, and are adjusting based on um, inflation. So uh, you can't necessarily um, say that if it's uh, $2,500 and it's a specific item case that it's going to get referred to CI, or if it's $10,000 and it's an indirect method case or a case with complicated facts that is going to get referred to CI. These are just very, um, uh, very general um, guidelines, but nothing that um, uh, definitively means a difference between whether a case remains civil and whether it gets referred to CI. Upon receipt of the referral from CI, CES determines whether the case is within its prosecution enforcement priorities. It then has the discretion to, disclo- to decline the IRS's recommendation and return the matter to the IRS either for fur- further investigation or with instructions to close out the criminal investigation. However, if um, CES approves the case, it will usually forward it to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the district or venue for criminal prosecution lies. And so that harkens back to what I talked about earlier where um, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington basically de- uh, basically determines whether the case is um, going to um, be, uh, be pursued criminally and to the extent that it will be pursued criminally, they'll make a decision as to whether to keep it uh, right where it is and to assign it to one of the attorneys in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, um, or whether to delegate it or outsource it, so to speak, to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the district where venue for criminal prosecution lies. All right. Now I want to get into this issue of uh, making uh, of the decision um, that comes up when it comes to filing returns for tax periods subsequent to periods um, that the taxpayer is being audited. So tax returns and tax return information may be disclosed to IRS special agents for use in criminal investigations. That goes without saying. Statements made on these returns may constitute admissions by the taxpayer that help special agents develop their case. Uh, So a lot of times um, the tax return itself can be item number one for evidence um, and can be the proverbial smoking gun in a criminal tax case. And so... It's very, very important for the tax practitioner to exercise due diligence when it comes to filing a subsequent return uh, while an eggshell audit is currently um, going on with respect to an earlier tax year. That is the dilemma. Okay, So let me try to... um, Let me try to simplify this a little bit. If the taxpayer files a timely and accurate accurate return for the later year, that later return might give the government ammunition in its criminal case. Uh, Why? Well, for the reason that the admissions contained on that return may help the government meet its burden of proof in the criminal case beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, Again, it may give the government ammunition the, um, smoking gun that it needs to, um, to nail, uh, to put the nail in the coffin of the taxpayer at a criminal trial. So let's, um, let me give you an example. Let's say that the issue in the earlier, um, in, in the audit involves unreported income from a business. A later year return accurately reports far higher income from the business than was reported in the year that's under audit. The later return naturally complicates the taxpayer's ability to deny the earlier omission of income and makes it that much easier for the examiner to infer that the taxpayer unreported Um, gross income in the year uh, that the return is being audited. And so that's why this becomes such a difficult question and a difficult dilemma um, to file or not to file. Uh, By not filing, of course, um, you know, that in itself could uh, have criminal repercussions. By filing, uh, we may actually hurt the taxpayer more than help him especially if the taxpayer is undergoing an eggshell audit where you as a tax practitioner know that there's a substantial amount of under of underreported income if the subsequent return that's being filed Um, accurately reports far higher income from the business than what was reported in the year that's under exam, well, (laughs) you've essentially um, given the government the evidence that they need to prove the underreporting of income from the year that's under investigation or under examination right now. And that's why this is such a dilemma. So, what happens if the taxpayer attempts to avoid this dilemma altogether by not filing a return in the later year at all? And that might, and, and that might be the first impulse that you get, especially under these facts, if the subsequent return accurately reports um, gross income and the um, and that report of gross income significant, is significantly higher than the amount that was reported in the year that's under exam. You might just say, "Well, I'm not I'm not going to file the return at all until this audit is done and over with." The problem, of course, is that the taxpayer then risks criminal or civil liability. Under Section seventy two hundred one for tax evasion, under Section seventy two hundred three, or Section sixty six fifty one. So we got to be careful here. We cannot, um, we cannot unilaterally um, sit back and say, "Let's not file," Um, you know, because that could that could lead to its own uh, that could lead to its own. Problems. However, uh, that's not to say that that is not the most prudent course. Um, and again, under the facts that I've given you, um, it would be um, suicidal <laughs> to um, submit a return that uh, accurately reports a substantially higher amount of gross income in a later year because, again, that's just uh, giving the examiner a roadmap to the fraud. Um, so we want to be careful here, but at the same time, we don't automatically want to say, well, we're not going to file at all, because that in itself could have um, tax criminal tax repercussion. The problem with filing um, in a later year is oftentimes um, mitigated by a number of possibilities. First, the taxpayer may offer the filing of accurate returns, as evidence to negate willfulness um, and that applies in some circuits so um, by that what I'm referring to is the tax crime of tax evasion requires willfulness and willfulness is you know a is basically a mental requirement um, to establish that there was an attempt to evade um, the, um, the the payment uh, of taxes. Uh, so to the extent that the taxpayer offers um, or files accurate returns in later year years, that tends to negate um, the willfulness requirement. But again, that applies in uh, some circuits and not all of the circuits. So it is important to consult with a tax attorney on that to be 100% sure whether you're in a circuit where Um, the filing of an accurate return uh, could blunt um, the willfulness for the return that's um, currently under exam. Second, the taxpayer may be able to assert his Fifth Amendment privilege as a basis for not filing the later return while um, the criminal case is pending. Third, even if the taxpayer um, chooses not to file... He can pay the tax by making a deposit in the form of a bond with respect to the later year. Um, you know, While the return has, hasn't been filed, um, the fact that the payment of tax was made will minimize interest accruals and may help show that the taxpayer is attempting to comply with his or her tax obligations. Uh, fourth, uh, the IRS uh, tends not to examine subsequent tax years when a criminal case is pending in the Department of Justice. So, these are all considerations when the case is already turned criminal. Um, Those that I've just listed, uh, the first being that the taxpayer may offer the filing of accurate returns as evidence to negate willfulness. Second, that the taxpayer may be able to assert a Fifth Amendment privilege as a basis for not filing the later return while the criminal case is pending. Third, um, that even if the taxpayer chooses not to file, he can pay the tax by making a deposit in the form of a bond, um, and that will at least minimize interest. And fourth, uh, the IRS tends to tends not to um, examine subsequent tax years when a criminal case is pending. Um, when there is an audit, an HL audit, um, keep in mind that uh, does not mean that the case is turned criminal. Even if you think it may be headed in that direction, um, in you know to the extent that it's um, in the audit stage um, only um, that there are other uh, considerations and it is it becomes that much more of a dilemma and um, that and it becomes that much more important to um, analyze the extent to which um, there to which uh, the there's fraud on the return. Um, the, uh, larger, uh, the amount of fraud and the more egregious it appears, um, then, um, that, uh, could, um, then, then that, uh, could obviously lend itself to, uh, going one route. Uh, the less obvious, uh, the fraudulent item appears on the return, uh, the more likely it might be to disclose and come out with it up front. Um, especially if you have uh, reasonable assurances from the examiner that uh, doing so will uh, not result in a referral to CI. Um, So at the end of the day, we're trying to protect uh, the rights of our clients. Uh, We don't want to do anything that's going to, God forbid, put them in criminal jeopardy. Um, And these are very delicate and sensitive issues. Um, I will repeat that by coming forward and disclosing Um, a fraudulent item on the return, um, even if that were to backfire, um, there is uh, always the possibility that that is going to uh, make it harder for the government to prove fraud or to prove willfulness in a tax evasion case in um, the criminal realm because um, the argument can always be made by defense counsel that the taxpayer came forward in good faith during the audit to disclose the fraudulent item, and it makes it le- it makes it less likely that um, the jury would make a finding that the taxpayer was uh, deliberate and um, uh, was engaging in um, intentional conduct uh, during the audit, um, because if. They came forward and were transparent by disclosing the fraudulent item. Then, um, you know, it becomes less likely that the taxpayer uh, was willful. And if the government cannot meet its burden of proving willfulness for purposes of tax evasion at trial, then they uh, then they can't obtain a conviction for that offense. So there are a number of things to evaluate. In this, um, in this context, and I do encourage you, if you have a situation similar to this one, and uh, these, uh, these are becoming a lot more common these days, to uh, reach out and speak to a tax attorney about it and um, not to do anything um, haphazardly. Uh, making a knee-jerk response to a situation like this is never good. It's very important to consult with, um, others and to discuss, um, to discuss it with, um, you know, with somebody, especially an attorney where you can be assured of attorney client privilege. Um, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to contact me anytime. Um, and, uh, my door is always open.